0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. And a good word it is. You can have a seat there where you are, and it would be so helpful to have a Bible out and open on your lap there to Mark chapter three. So if you want to turn there, that would be great. And as you're doing that, uh, first of all, if you are new with us this morning, thank you so much for being here. It's such an honor and a privilege to have you and. And we're just praying that the Lord would meet you in some really great and surprising ways today. And so um, thank you for being here. And if you'll do one thing for us, there should be a card under your seat. Should be a red side to it and a black side to it. If you'll make sure you fill out the black section of that card, it says guest information on it. If you'll fill that out at the end of the service, we'll pass around a little offering basket. And if you'll make sure that card gets in that basket at the end of the service, it would really help us serve you. So if you would do that for us, that would be so, so great. So that would be uh, wonderful if you wouldn't mind doing that. And then secondly, today is Mother's Day. It is that day. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that I live in a place that takes the fifth commandment. Honor your mother and your father and just gives us the day to think about that that we have, you know, we live in a place that has Mother's Day and Father's Day, um, where we just kind of set that side of day to figure out what would it look like today for us to honor our moms. Coming up in June, what does it look like for us to honor our dads? So we get the chance to do that, just as we start off our sermon this morning in this section of the service, we're gonna just take a chance to, you know, an opportunity to do that. And so if you're a mom, would you just go ahead, right there where you are, and stand up. Now hold your applause, we're gonna give it just a second. We wanna say a couple of things to our moms. So just give that just a second to, there we go. So any of our moms, you know, when I think personally about the the journey the Lord has had me on um, throughout my life, it it has just been so impacted by my mom. She has just played such a wonderful role in that. And uh, I was just talking to Miss Wright right here just a few minutes ago, and she was just reminiscing on what a joyful privilege it's been for her to be a mom. And, uh, you know, on the other side of that, you know, for those who have received the gift of a mom, um, it has just been one of the primary shapers um, of young boys and young girls to grow up into men and women. And so we as a church and just those around you this morning want to look at you and say, we are thankful for you. We are grateful for you. We honor you today. We hope the Lord blesses you and just smiles upon you today and encourages your heart today. So we want all of our moms at Stonegate just to know how deeply grateful we are for you. So in light of that, can we just give them an applause there where they are? Okay, you can have a seat there. And, you know, I know that today is also a day that for many ladies, it's a hard day. Because you're aspiring to motherhood, and for whatever reason, infertility sort of thing going on, it just hasn't happened. Laura and I, that's such a big part of Laura and I's journey of struggling through that, the ups and downs of that. So it was a really hard road for us. And so I know that a day like this can really sting. And so we also want to take a second to pray for you today that the Lord would give you every little thing that that you need to, to make it in that journey and to keep plotting forward in that journey. And so I've invited Kevin Hill, he's one of our elders out. And he's going to take a second to pray for our moms, um, for those in our, our congregation that are aspiring to be moms. So, Kevin, we'll just give you a second. to. I think your mom is here, right?
1: She is. And uh, before I uh, speak, I'm honored to have you here, Mom. And I just want to tell you personally how thankful I am as far as what you've spoken in my life and all the hard work of uh, teaching me the Lord, you know. So I really thank you. So. Mm-hmm. You bet. Still got a lot to go, right? (laughs) Yeah, she's still
0: mothering you, I'm sure, in a lot of ways, right? (laughs) That's right.
1: We're good. Let's pray real quick, all right? Father, we just come before you, and, uh, Lord, we just lift up uh, moms in this room, Father, and we just want to thank you, Lord, for the influence, uh, Lord, that they have upon us. And, uh, Lord, let's pray, God, for, uh, Lord, that you just bless them this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray also for single moms. And that hard duty, Father, of uh, parenting uh, kids by themselves, Father. And I pray, God, for the single moms in this room, Lord, that you would just bestow grace and blessing upon them. And then lastly, Father, I just want to pray for uh, those aspiring moms, Father, who are struggling. And, uh, Father, I just pray for comfort upon them. And, and, Lord, I pray for a way and healing in that uh, area, Father, for them. And we just pray, God, that you would just bless uh the moms this morning. Thank you for blessing me with a mom, Father. And uh, we just ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, and you know, and just to encourage
0: everyone that if you're around your mom today, uh, just to make sure you take the, the opportunity today to look them in the eye and to verbalize your appreciation and gratefulness to them. Um, a lot of times moms feel very unaffirmed by their sons and daughters. And so just take, take today as an opportunity for you to affirm your mom, you know, your mom. to to look at her in the eye and to say how grateful you are for her. So I just want to encourage you to make sure you do that. Okay, so we are jumping into Mark chapter 3. Now, if you've been here over the last couple of months, you know that we have been in a set of sermons called The Family. So in this set of sermons, we have been thinking about how important the family is. And I hope that you have heard just loud and clear over the last few weeks that, that your family, like your individual family, is an important thing. It is a, I mean, it's massively important. It is a huge shaper in the life of your sons and your daughters. And so it, it is massively important. So I've heard, I hope that you've heard that in a very clear way, that it is really important to Jesus. It's really important to us as a church. These things are really, really important. When we think about our church family, we oftentimes just say it like this, that the strength of our church is really determined by the strength of our families, So all of what we have been covering over the last few weeks is massively important. The family is really foundational, it's crucial, it's important in all of those sorts of ways. Now today is one of those days that balances that thought. So we've given time to thinking about marriage and the importance of marriage, parenting and the importance of parenting, all of those sort of family dynamics. That's what we've been talking about. But today is one of those days where we get to have like the Bible fill in the rest of the story for us. And we're going to get to see that, yes, your family, like your individual family, marriage, parenting, yes, those things are really, really important, but they're not everything. They're not ultimate. Yes, they're important, but they're not ultimate. They're not eternal. When Jesus thinks about the family, he doesn't just think about our individual little families here. He also sees us in the wider context of a church family. So we're going to get a chance to think through that sort of balancing thought today of the your only family that you have to deal with and think about is not just your individual family, but God has put you inside of a church family and we have to think about what does it look like for us to embrace a church family? So that takes us to, uh, to Mark chapter three. Let me read this again for you and just beginning to ask the Lord to just show us what would you have us in a passage like this? How would you help us fill in the gaps for when we think about the word family, all that God would want us to see. So Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. Then he, talking about Jesus, went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So like you've got crowds, you've got ministry happening to the point where Jesus can't even find food because he's so busy doing it. And then verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, He is out of his mind, like Jesus, his family, his mom, his his brothers, they're looking at Jesus thinking this guy has fallen off the abyss. He's gone crazy on us. And then verse 31, "'And his mother and his brothers came "'and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. "'And a crowd was sitting around him, "'and they said to him, "'Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you.' "'And he answered them, "'Who are my mother and my brothers?' And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, now think about the context of this. To kind of just lean into the edge and really the sharp edge that this passage has, you have to put yourself into the shoes of Jesus' family. In particular, his mom who is there and likely his brother who is there. And so, you know, when you put yourself into the shoes of them, they are looking at Jesus in verses 20 and 21. They're looking at his ministry and what's happening, and they literally think that that he's gone crazy. So in verse 21, they have gone out to seize him. Like, they are coming to Jesus thinking, we are about to physically take him, drag him kind of back into our family system so that he can kind of do what's important here. Tend to, like, the family thing going on here. And so that's what's happening by the time you get to verse 21. Then uh, Mark kind of walks us through the, the, some really hard sayings of Jesus on the unforgivable sin. Then the family tension comes back in verse 31. We're back into the family tension. And w- you know, when you step into verse 31, here's the dynamic. You've got the disciples and this crowd who are on the inside with Jesus, and you've got his mom and his brothers on the outside of, of you know, that crowd. And th- you know, we, they come and they're seeking Jesus in verse, you know, verse 32. And that word seeking, by the way, it's used 10 times in the book of Mark. And in virtually every time it's used in the gospel of Mark, it's always has a negative bent to it. So it's the Pharisees who are seeking to put Jesus to death. It's used in those sort of ways. So this is not a sort of seeking where his mom and his brother are coming and, and they're thinking, man, let's drop off an encouraging note to Jesus to put a little pep in his step today. Let's do that. That's not the sort of seeking. It is a seeking that has the intent to seize him, to shake him a few times, so he'll kind of you know, come out of the fog and back to his senses. And then you get to verses 34 and 35. And looking about it, those who sat around him, Jesus said, here are my mother, And my brothers. Now, what do you expect it to say next? I expect verse 35 to say, and Jesus pointed over at his mom and over at his brothers and pointed out his mom and his brothers. That's what I would expect him to to say. But that's not what he says in verse 35. He says this shocking thing For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, there's a lot happening in verse 35, but if you just want to kind of cut it to its core, here is what Jesus is doing in this passage. Jesus is radically redefining who is our family. He is radically redefining family for us. He is showing us something here that we all need to come to grips with. This is the balancing moment. Yes, your family over here is important. And yes, Jesus is saying there is something going on here in this family that is more important. He's radically redefining family. So let me just kind of put this passage into a couple of different categories and a couple of different kind of buckets. We'll start with the first one. Point number one, Jesus in this passage calls us family. He calls us family. Now, you know, when you think about the life of a Christian, a Christian has two different family systems going on. And here's the, the two different ways you could think about the family systems. On one side, a Christian has their family by birth. Now that's your, you know, think of it in terms of like your biological family um, or, you know, the the family you were born into or maybe you were adopted into this family. That's your family by birth. So that's one family. Then the other family that that a Christian has is a family by rebirth. Those are the people who have trusted Jesus that God has made family, made, made brothers and sisters. So we have a family by birth and a family by rebirth. Now I wanna make overtly clear again, our family by birth is important. You know, this this passage is not the only thing Jesus says about our family by birth. And throughout the Bible, Jesus is going to make it very clear that both Jesus and the Bible as a whole is undeniably pro your family by birth. Jesus is for those things. Undeniably for those things. So we as a church are undeniably for those things. We talk a lot about the importance of your family by birth. That's why we have done the family series because we want to spend time thinking about marriage and parenting. We want to be able to look at all of our men and to look at our men and say to them, you are the pastor of your family. God has put you in your family system so that you could shepherd and pastor your wife and your kids. And then together with your wife, you get to shepherd your children. You get to bring them up in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord. You get to make good, fruitful disciples of your kids. So we talk a lot about those things because they're important to Jesus. Therefore, they're massively important to us as a church. But in this passage, Jesus is giving us that balance. He is saying, yes, I am pro your family by birth. But at the same time, he is making it clear in this passage that family by birth doesn't come first. Now that is a countercultural just statement in our kind of day and age. He is saying, and it was in Jesus's day and age too, by the way, he is saying to us, your family by birth does not come first. It does not get the place of primacy in your life. In essence, what's happening in this passage is Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. And Jesus is showing us, that when you become a follower of his, when you become a Christian, a disciple of Jesus's, your deepest commitment is to Jesus, not your family. Now I just wanna let that just kind of simmer for a second. Jesus is showing us here that when you become a Christian, your deepest devotion and allegiance is no longer to your family. Your deepest allegiance is to Jesus. Now, he says this in overt ways in some other places in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, Jesus says it this way. He said, and this should be on the screen for you. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I mean, that's the overt way of saying it. So the, the Bible is saying, yes, your family by birth is important. Yes to that. But it's not ultimate. It's not that. It's, it does not have the place of primacy in our lives anymore. It is a great thing in our lives. But here's the thing. It's not a God thing. It's never meant to take the place of God in our life. The, the Bible is saying yes to family, but it's saying no to family in the place of God. Now, that walks us into what I think is just a much needed conversation in our day and age. And that conversation starts with this family idolatry. Here's what I think. In our day and age, in our culture right now, family idolatry is one of the most acceptable sins in conservative churches today. Family idolatry. It's one of the most acceptable, sort of like praised sins kind of forms of idolatry in our church today. Now, let's just kind of unpack what that is. What is family idolatry? First, that starts with the question, what is idolatry? An idol is anything that we have inflated, part of God's creation that we have inflated and we have placed that into the the place of God. That's an idol. Anything that's elevated in our life to the place of God so that we begin to look to it for only what God can give us. So family idolatry is when we elevate family to the point that we are looking to to family for only the things that God could give us. It's when family gets inflated to that first place of priority in our life. That is family idolatry and that is everywhere in our culture. And so how does that play out? If you're single, Oftentimes that plays out in this, these sort of thoughts. If I don't get married, my life will not be complete. If I don't get married, somehow I'm gonna be a second class something in my life. Or when you are married, family idolatry can, can come out in this way. We begin to look at our spouse and we begin to transfer what only Jesus can really give us over to our spouse, demanding that they give us what only Jesus can give us, thereby crushing Our spouse. Or it can play out this way in kids. It's that thought of, we get so attached to our kids. And by the way, we live in a a culture that's gone kid crazy, right? I mean, we live in a suburban context that like parenting is the new competitive sport in our day and age, right? I mean, it's crazy the place that that we have given kids. But it's putting kids so much in the center of everything that our whole worlds revolve around our kids. It's that sort of play out in family idolatry. Listen to one writer in a magazine called The New Yorker describe our crazy sort of kid dysfunction today. She said it this way. She said, With the exception of the imperial offspring of the Ming dynasty and the kids of pre-revolutionary France. So take out those two kind of time periods and those two cultures. She says this, Contemporary American kids may represent the most indulged young people in the history of the world. I'm going to read that last statement more time. Contemporary American kids may represent the most indulged young people in the history of the world. It's not just, she goes on to say, it's not just that they've been given unprecedented amounts of stuff. They've also been granted unprecedented amounts of authority. Parents want their kids' approval, a reversal of the past ideal of children striving for their parents' approval. You know, if, if the error of the previous generation was to ignore children, the error of our generation, of our current culture, is to overindulge our kids. To put them as the center of the universe where everything else, including God, orbits around our kids. Um, I, I love how one guy, and agree with how one guy said it. He said, we don't live in a matriarchal or patriarchal society. We live in a kidriarchal society where kids are just like the center of everything. That's kind of the day and age and the culture that we live in, where marriage revolves around kids. This is one of the reasons that a lot of times when kids graduate and leave the home, so many marriages have a way of imploding. So, so marriages kind of have a way of operating around the kids, schedules operating around the kids, everything is operating around the kids. And I mean, hear me, the Bible is pro your kids. It's like, yes, parent your kids well, but the Bible is not saying put kids in the center of the universe. If we have kids in the center of our like relational universe, displacing even God, that's not because we have learned that from the Bible. It's because the the culture around us has discipled us so well in its values. That's the reason that that is happening. So this passage is meant to be a, a shocking passage intended to get us thinking about these sort of things. Like have we put family up into the place of God? Have we elevated to that sort of a position in our life? You know, it's interesting for me to even think about testimonies in the local church. Like these sort of testimonies, by God's grace, we have had over and over again. The, the sort of testimonies that sound something like this. men, um, we had given our life to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and all the things that come along with that. And then God rescued me. And he saved me from those things. And now God is in first place. And now my life is revolving around God. We've had a lot of those sort of of stories. But do you know the story that has been strangely absent in so many conservative churches is the, the sort of thought that would go like this. I've been living apart from God all of my life. And here's what was really at the place of God in my life, family. It's the thing I was looking to to derive my significance and security and like my sense of well-being in my life was totally attached to my family. Like how I thought about me was totally embedded into how my family was doing. Totally void of God. And God rescued me. My my family is no longer in the primary seat in my life. It is now in, it's like tertiary seat. It's right there where it should be. And God is now in the primary seat of my life. I just, we very seldom hear that story. And it's not because that, that story isn't needed in the church it's because we just don't have eyes to see that sort of acceptable sort of idolatry of, of, of the family. It's just we don't have eyes to see how deeply embedded into us that is. Um, some of you have probably seen the movie, The Family Man. You ever seen that? Nicolas Cage came out in about 2000, maybe 2001. Uh, if you remember the storyline of the movie, uh, Nicolas Cage was this you know, high-flying investment Uh, investment banker, sort of a guy worth just millions and millions of dollars. So he has all the fast cars, all the nice stuff, the huge sort of penthouse. I mean, he had everything you could buy that brother had. And so uh, in that movie, he's put into an alternate sort of universe where uh, where he didn't say no to the to the girl that that he wanted to marry him and he wanted to marry her you know in his previous life he said no to her he took the investment banker life did all that but he's put in this alternate universe where he said yes to her so he wakes up and he's not the high flying investment banker guy he's a tire salesman And he's not in the penthouse. He's in this little cramped home. He's not driving the nice car. He's got the car that's like 20 years old, beat up and bruised. It barely made it home. You know, it's that life that he's living. And at the beginning of the movie, he hates his life. The only thing he's wanting to do is to get back to his investment banking life. All the fast stuff, all the nice stuff. He's wanting to get back there. But by the end of the movie, he kind of the fog clears and he begins to see, man, I've got this precious wife. Man, what a gift. I've got this family. What a great gift they are. These things are actually better than this high-flying investment bankery life over here. And everything in you when you watch the movie is like, yes to that. That is great. He's not, you know, the fog is cleared. He actually is seeing what's valuable. But here's the, here's the, the fear that I have when people watch that movie. I have the fear that they're gonna do exactly what Nicolas Cage does. And here is what he does in that movie. He just trades one form of idolatry. Big investment banking, big ambition. Let's go make something of ourselves over here. He trades that form of idolatry for another form of idolatry. He has, at the beginning of the movie, he has this in the primary place in his life. It's meant how can I make myself something by being something in the the business world? But at the end of the movie, he has this in the, the primary place in his life. How can I care for and really do a family well? At the end of the day, all he has done is swap idolatry. And one of the things that I fear for us is when we get inside of like a church context, this is what we think. I'm not going to do all of these things that I know are bad, but I'm going to trade that form of idolatry. And I'm going to just take something that's good, like my family. And I'm going to elevate it to the place of primacy. And I'm just going to exchange that form of idolatry for this form of idolatry. But we all just need a moment. This is what Jesus is showing us here. He doesn't want us to ever swap one form of idolatry for another one. He wants us to take all of our idolatry, push it all in, give all of that to Jesus, and we make Jesus our God, right? This is what he's wanting us to do, not swap idolatries, but trade all of our idolatries for Jesus. He actually wants to be the thing in our life where we derive our sense of significance, our sense of value. He wants to be the thing that we derive all of that from. And this is what he's showing us in this passage, that he wants to be that, that this is what he wants for us. I mean, ultimately, he is showing us in this passage that he'll take first place in our lives or he'll take no place in our lives. I mean, that's what he's showing us here. And you know what's ironic about the whole thing? When we elevate family to the primary point in our life, we are actually ensuring that we're going to crush our family. It's when we actually de-elevate family and put God in his rightful place in our life that then our family system can actually begin to work itself out. That then our family system can actually flourish in the ways that God has intended it to flourish. So Jesus is reminding us here that, that our family uh, by birth doesn't come first, but he's also reminding us that our family by birth or by rebirth, our family by rebirth is more real and lasting than our family by birth. Now just think on that for a minute. Part of what Jesus is doing here, like I expect him to say, here's my family. There's my mom, there's my brother over there, that's my family. But that's not what he's showing us in this passage. When he is thinking in the deepest way about who his family is, he does not think about his family by birth, but his family by rebirth. Now, why is that? The reason is because our family by rebirth is more real and lasting than our family by birth. That's the shocking sort of moment in this passage. Jesus is showing us here that the family that is most lasting Most enduring is not the family that you're born into, but the family that you're reborn into. Not your family by birth, but your family by rebirth, your church family. In a lot of ways, I think of this passage as opening up a window for us so that we can see how we're going to think about family in a million years from now. If you're a follower of Jesus and you wake up and it's a million years later, when you think about the word family, you're not first going to think, who was I married to? Who are my, who are my kids? Who? That's not the first thing you're gonna think. In a million years from now, Jesus is showing us that the thing we're gonna think about is our family by rebirth. That Those who along with us have trusted Jesus and are walking with Jesus. That's who we're gonna think about when we think about the family. You know, it's interesting. In Matthew 22, Jesus is talking about marriage. And he says something that I think a lot of people don't think about or don't know. He says at the end of the day, marriage is a temporary arrangement. We're not going to be married to other human beings in heaven. It's a temporary arrangement meant to point us to the eternal marriage that we're going to have with Jesus. That's what marriage is meant to do. And in the same way, the whole like, I'm a dad and Caleb's my son and Hannah's my daughter and Eva's my, those are temporary arrangements at the end of the day. That all of those arrangements are signposts pointing us to what it's gonna look like to live with God and our church family forever. That's what all of those relationships now are doing. And so he's reminding us here, in a million years from now, the family that you're going to feel the deepest is not going to be your biological family by birth thing. It's going to be your church family. That's the family that you're going to have the deepest sense of. Now, that just leads to the question for us. Do we believe that? Do you believe that? When you think about how your life is arranged, are are you living as if that is true? Are you pursuing a church family like that? Do you value your church family, your family by rebirth like that? I mean, part of what Jesus is trying to do here is to get us in tune with that reality. That our family by rebirth is the most lasting family that we're going to have. It's the eternal family that we're going to have. You know, it's interesting when you read the New Testament, especially the epistles, how when Paul is talking to his churches that he's writing to, he's always referring to them as brothers and sisters. The posture that he takes to them is like it's, it's father, son in terms of the relationship with them. But none of that is biological. None of that is family by birth stuff. All of that is family by rebirth things. But to Paul, a single man, it had been deeply pressed upon his heart that the most lasting and enduring family I have is my family by rebirth, my church family. And this is part of what Jesus is showing us here, that family by birth doesn't come first, that family by rebirth is more lasting and more real than family by birth. So Jesus calls us family in this passage. Here's the next thing we see, is that Jesus makes us family. He doesn't just call us family. He's the one that makes us family. Now you see this in verses 34 and 35. It says, in looking about at those who sat around him, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. Who are they? Here it is in verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, when I read verse 35, it instantly brings about in my heart the question. So how do we become family then? Like, like how does that happen? How do we become family with with the church, with with God? How how does that happen? Do we we become family by something we do or do we become family by something that Jesus has done for us? And I wanna clarify, because this passage could could lean to, to having people see something that's not in this passage. I wanna clarify that Jesus is not saying that somehow we earn our family status by what we do. That's not what he is saying. He is saying that what we do in many ways shows and gives evidence and proof that we're actually in God's family. But we don't earn our family status. Our family status has been earned by Jesus. He has done everything needed to happen in your life and my life for us to get into the family of God. So it's not by what we do, it's by what Jesus does. And the rest of the New Testament, if you put this verse, verse 35, in the wider context of the New Testament, it makes it very clear. Verse 35, isn't Jesus trying to teach us how exactly do we get into the family of God? Other places in the New Testament show that very clearly. For instance, Ephesians chapter one, verse five shows us that, that how are we kind of put into the family of God? It says that God predestined us for adoption. He set his love upon us. He came and pursued us. He sent his beloved son, Jesus, to come and live a perfect life in our place, to die on the cross for our sin. All of God's wrath for our sin came crashing down onto the head of Jesus on the cross. He was crushed there for our iniquity. On the third day, he was raised from the dead, showing God's power over Satan, sin, and death. He has made the way for us to come into the family of God. So how do we get into the family of God in light of that? First John chapter 1 or John chapter 1, verse 12 shows us. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How do we get into the family of God? We come with the empty hands of faith, turning from all the sin that disqualifies us, all the good things that we think qualify us before God. We come with the empty hands of faith and we come to God saying to God, my life is yours. I'm trusting in the finished work of Jesus to cover all of my failures, all of my shortcomings. I'm trusting that Jesus has done everything needed to get me into your family. God, rescue me and save me. And in that moment of receiving Jesus, we're adopted into the family of God. God the Father becomes our good dad. Jesus becomes our older uh, brother. Our church now becomes the most lasting and enduring family that we have in that moment. So it's not just that God, our Jesus, calls us family in this passage. In this passage, it's also Him making us family. He is the one that makes us into a family. Now, before we go any further, there's just a moment here that we need to have. Have you ever just, just asked yourself the question Are you in the family of God? Are you in the family? I mean, what a great question for us to wrestle through this morning. Am I in the family of God? Has there been a moment where I've come to God with the empty hands of faith and offered him my life? That that from the deepest places of my heart, I'm looking up at God and I'm saying, God, my my life is yours. I'm trusting in Jesus. Rescue me and save me. Has that moment ever happened? And if not, what a wonderful morning for you this morning to, to become a member of the family of God. To to get a church family around you. What a great moment for that. So Jesus calls his family and Jesus makes his family. And here's the last point. If that is true, if Jesus calls his family and he's made his family, wouldn't it make sense that we should actually begin the journey of growing into that family? I mean, wouldn't it make sense that we are then called to live like the family that Jesus has made us? I mean, that would seem to make sense to me. If Jesus has positionally made us family, like if you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, that means that we're brother or we're brother and sister, depending on your gender in the room. But but we are now in the same family. So if that is true of us positionally, wouldn't it make sense that we begin to pursue that practically, that we begin to take the family that God has given us called the church and we begin to insert our lives into that family and actually begin to live like we're family, Now, I wanna end just by getting really practical and giving a few ways that we can do that. We can actually begin to, to pursue the family that God has given us, to actually live like the family that we have been made. So let me just give you three kind of ideas and starting places of what it might look like for us to pursue becoming the family that Jesus has already made us. First, it requires a pursuit on your part and on my part like if we're gonna actually become family, if it's gonna be more than we just show up on a Sunday morning and kind of do a service thing and then go home and live our own lives, if it's gonna actually be like become a thing where we're, we're melding together as a church family, it requires intentional pursuit of that. It doesn't just happen. You don't just stumble into that. So I think one of the problems that we all have when we come into a church environment, just like this, we come in a room like this, and I think there is something deep in most of us that is saying I would really like to have deep friendships with people in this room. I would really like to be involved in those sort of deep ways with people. But I think the problem right behind that is, our next thought is, that should be handed to us on a silver platter. And there's a problem, right? Deep friendships are never handed to anyone. The only way anyone ever has deep friendships is when those friendships are intentionally pursued. I mean, just think about the complicated nature of our lives. There's some sort of a job that we're working to kind of make that thing work. Then you have a marriage on top of that. You're trying to keep that going. Then you have, you know, for many of us in the room, kids on top of that. You're trying to keep that going. You put all of those things together and here is what we all need to know. Life is going to have a way of sucking us into, swallowing us up into those kind of commitments as we forsake our larger church family. That's what's gonna happen if we just let kind of the default kind of nature play itself out in your life and in my life. So, so what's gonna happen in your life is you're just gonna kind of gravitate to the path of least resistance. And the path of least resistance is going to have us all thinking like this. Let's just kind of circle the wagons around our family by birth. Let's just make sure it's good. And, and who cares what happens to anything beyond that? And part of what this passage is showing us is, no, we've got to fight against that innate sort of thing of doing that. We cannot just circle the wagons around our family by birth and call it good at that. We've got to get our life into the larger church family that God has given us. And we've got to figure out what it looks like to make them a family as well, to actually pursue them being a family for us. Now, the one another's in the Bible, I think are helpful just in giving some handlebars to that. What does it look like for you to intentionally pursue a church as a family? There's 59 one another's in the New Testament, and it looks like living those things out. So we love one another. It looks like thinking about your church family and asking the question: how can I love this church family? That's John 13, 34. It looks like being devoted to one another in brotherly love. That's Romans 12:10. So we need to ask the question about our church family. How can we be devoted to this particular church family? It looks like serving one another. That's Galatians 5:13. It looks like us taking the gifts that God's given us and laying those down and serving other people with those gifts. So we need to be asking the question: What does it look like for me to take my gifts and serve a church family? It looks like carrying each other's burdens. That's Galatians six two. So it's looking at a church family and saying: What does it look like for me to lift some burdens in this church family? Where is a burden that I can shoulder for the sake of someone else? It looks like being patient with one another. That's Ephesians chapter four verse two. It looks like encouraging each other. Like thinking about a church family and asking the question, how can I encourage the people in this church? That's 1 Thessalonians five eleven. It looks like spurring one another on toward love and good deeds. That's Hebrews ten twenty four. It looks like looking at your church family and asking the question, how can I help someone in my church family love Jesus more? How can I do that? And then it's stepping into those things. But, but part of what those one another's are showing us is we don't just stumble into the church as a family. If we're actually going to have the church as a family, Like practically, we're going to live like that. It's got to be prized and prioritized in our life. We're going to have to get a lot of intentionality behind that. And just some ways to think about that. But what would it look like just maybe for once a month, like one time a month, you open up your home and invite someone in our church family into your home. What would it look like maybe once a month for you just to leave a Sunday lunch open after after we gather and just to invite someone in our church family to lunch after, you, you know, you leave here? Um, you know, part of how this plays out is you being inside of a home group. So if you're not inside of a home group, it's really hard for a large church to become family for you. So part of that might look like getting into a home group and, and jumping into that. And then it's thinking about that home group. But it's asking, God, how can I help this group of people love Jesus more? And then it's proactively pursuing the people in that group like that. So, so we've got to intentionally prioritize church as family. We, we've got to move toward it and run after it. So we've got to prioritize it. The second way, if you want the church to actually be family, the second way that can happen is that it requires honesty or an openness to people. See, when I think about family, I don't know about your family, but when I think about my family, like my, my family by birth, here's part of what defines family by birth to me. They know both the good in my life and the bad in my life. I mean, it's just kind of hard to hide from your family by birth. They kind of see the good, bad, and the ugly. They see it all of you. This is part of what defines a family. This is part of what makes family families. they see the good and the bad. Uh, they see it both. Now, in the same way, if you want to have your church become a family for you, you can't just let them see the good in your life. I mean, all of us are probably pretty comfortable letting them see the good in us. I mean, we, we don't mind like throwing the laundry list of ways that we're awesome out in front of people. Right, But it's the bad part that gets really terrifying. We don't like to let people see that part of us. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine a couple of years ago and he was talking about his sister. She lives in another state and uh, she had just experienced a nervous breakdown, just a really messy, hard moment in her life. And as he was talking to her on the phone, he said, I mean, have you invited your church family into that? And I'll never forget her response to her brother. She looked uh, over the phone, talked to her brother. She said, Man, there's no way I'd ever want my church family to know those things. Now, I think that is the common way people think about their church. And at the same time, it's showing you that when we think about our church that way, it is keeping the church from actually becoming the family that it really should be for us. Part of what it looks like for us to embrace a church as a family is we've got to shed the mask of our awesomeness and we've got to actually allow people to see where we're struggling. See, I think it's really normal for people to come into a moment just like this and to try to be about the work of convincing everyone that their life is perfectly put together as opposed to showing them the places that it's broken. So so it's very normal for people to have a really broken marriage, really struggling, but then to convince everybody in their church that it's actually going great or that their finances are going great when their finances are actually crumbling. Part of what it means for us to be a church family is we've got to bear those things to the people around us so that they can actually get in the weeds of those things with us. We have worked so hard at creating a culture here that has three things into it. And these are the three things that we all need if we're going to grow up in Jesus. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. Repeated exposures to the good news of Jesus. We've got to have that. The second thing we need is safety. We need a safe place where the bad of us can be known. We need the gospel, we need safety, and we need time. We need people willing to walk with us on the journey of becoming more like Jesus. We need gospel plus safety plus time. And we're really serious. We've created, we worked really hard at creating a culture here for that to happen. Now, the primary place that happens is in the context of a home group. If you're not in a home group, and I just wanna encourage you to jump into one. And part of what we have tried to do in a home group is to create a safe place for not just the good to be known about you, but for the bad to be known. Uh, John Wesley, back in the 1700s, he was kind of the forefather of small groups. Kind of the small group thing that has kind kind of taken over a lot of the church world today. He was doing that back in the 1700s. And back in the 1700s, he created just a list of like, here are kind of the normal expectations of what we want to happen inside of a small group. And one of those in particular, I think is so fitting for what we're trying to create within all of our home groups in our church family. It was kind of their fourth rule or their fourth expectation. And it read like this. He said, every person in the group speak as freely, plainly, and concisely as he or she can about the real state of their heart with his several temptations and deliverances since the last time we met. Now that's what a home group is meant to be, a place where you can speak freely and plainly and concisely about how you're really doing. Not what you're trying to convince other people that you're really doing, but how you're really doing for you to be able to speak freely and plainly and concisely about those things, and then to also talk about where you've been uniquely tempted over the last few weeks and where you have experienced the grace of God in unique ways. We're trying to do everything we can to create a safe place for that to happen. And this is what we all need. If we're gonna pursue church as family, it means that we've gotta be open. We've gotta be honest with other people about how we're doing. And then thirdly and lastly, it requires patience. It requires patience. Pursuing the church's family is hard. And the reason it's hard is because family is hard. There is not a person in this room who's been involved in any family system where you would say, you know what? This is, this is the primary thing about family. Family has just been so easy for us. It's just so smooth and easy. We never." Ha-. That's just not reality, is it? Family is hard. And you know why family's hard? Because people are hard. Because you're hard. Because I'm hard. That's why family is so hard because people like you and me make up families, right? One one of the things that I consistently try to do around Stonegate just to seed this into the culture, and we're gonna have another little moment of this, is I just ask everybody in a room like this to look around the room. Can you just do that? Look around the room and just get a few faces in in your kind of mind's eye. You see those faces? Don't they look so kind sitting there? I mean, don't they look so nice sitting there? I mean, they they look so great sitting right there in that chair right now. But, But we all need to be armed with this awareness. Those are the very people who are going to hurt you the deepest. And do you know why that is? Because they're people. And they're flawed people like you're a flawed person. And part of what it means to be a family, like the church is a family, means that we are patient with flawed people. And we are looking around at other flawed people, asking them to be patient with our flaws. This is part of what it means to be a family, is that we're looking around and we're patient with people. We're enduring. We we don't just bail out the first time we get hurt, but we hang in there, we keep enduring. Because we're looking at these people And they're family to us. Can you think about your own like biological kind of family by birth system? What if every time you got hurt by someone, you walked out of your family? You wouldn't have a family, would you? You wouldn't have one, right? And in the same sort of a way, if we're ever going to be family, it means we're going to have to give a lot of grace to everyone in this room. But we're gonna have to recognize we're all flawed people stumbling forward toward Jesus. And let me just close with this idea. Do you know there's something great about that for you? Have you ever asked yourself the question? I ask myself this periodically. Rodney, is like like the, the new person Jesus has created you to be, is that new person legit? Like, have you really been rescued by Jesus? H- has God really made a new you? Are you really a new creation in Jesus? I mean, are, are you, is this thing for real in you? And, and do you know what, what I've just settled on? One of the best ways to determine that is by how I love a church family. That's one of the best ways for you to know that. Listen to a guy named Mark Dever comment on that. He said it this way. Do you wanna know that your new life is real? Do you wanna know that about you? That that Jesus has really made you a new person? He says this, commit yourself to a local group of saved sinners. Get yourself deeply connected to a church and make sure they're becoming family for you. Commit yourself to a local group of saved sinners. Try to love them. Don't just do it for three weeks. Don't just do it for six months, but do it for years. And I think you'll find, and others will too, whether or not you love God. The truth will just have a way of showing itself. Amen. I pray that for you and for me, that one of the ways that we could test the authenticity of our faith in Jesus is that we would get ourselves deeply connected to this church family, and we would begin to see the fruit of the Spirit grow in our life, amen? Let's pray together. I just want to give you a moment sitting there to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. You know, when you think about your life, there is no doubt that your family by birth has been, for good or bad, one of the greatest shapers in your life. And in the same way, Jesus is looking at all of us and saying, hey, your church family, the family that I've made you in me, that family, your family by rebirth is meant to be one of the greatest shapers of your life. The, The way we grow and press forward in our walk with God is in community. It's through people who are loving Jesus and stumbling forward together with us. Can you imagine in David, the the king in the Bible, can you imagine in David's life what would have happened to him apart from the prophet Nathan confronting him in his sin? Can you imagine Peter? What would have happened to Peter had Paul not confronted him in Galatians chapter two? And have you ever thought about your own life? Have you ever just asked the question, who might you become as you give your life to a growing local church? Who might you become? What what might God make you you as you embed your life into a local group of saved sinners? So, oh God, I pray that you would show that to us. I pray that you might show us what we could become. Father, I pray that you would take this passage and help round out the way we think about family. And God, I pray that you would put in each of us a deep sense of my family by rebirth is massively important. God, I pray that that would lead us to to taking our lives and getting it deeply connected into a local church, a local group of saved sinners. And God, I pray that you would produce wonderful fruit in our life as we do that. So, oh God, would you be leading us and pressing us in that direction? And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.